0: Hello everybody uh, and Kioro. Welcome to our first webinar of 2023. In today's session we will focus on the update um, to the guide to road design part five, uh, drainage, uh, general and hydrology considerations. The guide now reflects the new work uh, and methodology from Australian rainfall and runoff uh, released in 2019. Today, we will provide an overview of the changes, focusing particularly on Section 6, hydrology. Um, We have more than 900 people registered for today's session. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a communications officer at Ostrodes uh, and I will be moderating today's session together with Chris Russell and Monique Ritalik. Chris is the Director of Hydraulics and Flooding with the Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads. Uh, Chris managed this project, and Monique is the Technical Director at WMA Water. She's one of the authors. Chris and Monique will moderate the Q&A at the end of the webinar. I'd like to start uh, by acknowledging the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the regional people of New Zealand. I also acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. Ostrot is based in Sydney, uh, and so today I'm on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respect to Elders past, present and emerging, um, and a deep and ongoing connection to the land. A bit of, uh, a little bit about Austroats. Uh, we are the Collective of Australasian Transport and Traffic Agencies and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. Um, the project uh, that we are focusing on today was delivered under the Road Safety and Design Programme, which is managed by Michael Newstick. So our presenters will speak for 40 minutes um, and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. The slides and the guides uh, can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right hand side of your screen. To send us your questions for the Q&A, please use the question icon um, on your sidebar. If your question relates to any particular slide, include the number um, of that slide in your message. That um, helps give context to your question and helps us answer, um, answer it as best as we can. Also, let us know if you have any technical problems, but just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture phrases, the issue, issue is most likely um, with your internet connection. So closing your browser and rejoining the session using your uh, email registration usually helps. This session is being recorded and we will uh, let you know when the recording is available on our website. If you listen to podcasts, um, you can also find Austroats in your podcast app. It gives me great pleasure um, to introduce our presenters for today. We will first hear from Chris Russell, uh, who will introduce the project team. And our second presenter is uh, Dr. Bill Weeks. Bill has 50 years experience in hydrology and water resources work. Um, He has worked in the public and private sectors on road and rail projects in every state um, and territory of Australia. He was the Director of Hydraulics uh, with the Queensland Department of Transport and Main um until 2014 and since then has worked um, as an independent uh, consultant. After Bill, we will be joined uh, by Mark Babister. Mark is the Managing Director of WMA Water. Uh, He has almost 40 years experience in floodplain management. And Mark is the co-editor of the 2019 update um, of Australian rainfall and runoff. Mark and Bill will take us through the revision uh, and updates uh, to the guide. And after the presentation, we will have some time to answer your questions. So welcome to um, all our presenters and over to you, Chris.
1: Thanks, Ekaterina. Um, Hello everyone, my name is Chris Russell. As mentioned, I work for the Queensland Department of Transport Main Roads and was project manager for this update to the Guide for Road Design, part five. Uh, As mentioned, the update was undertaken by consultants WMA Water, uh, represented by Mark, Bill and Monique are with us today. The update was guided and overseen by a project working group uh, and the names are on the screen made up of representatives from state road authorities throughout Australia and New Zealand, local government and Consult Australia uh, and specifically the committee of the group was made up of Bernie Worthington, Albert Wong from Main Roads WA, Peter Ellis and Jade Hogan from Transport for New South Wales, Lee Toscan and Naomi Harris from local government, specifically Blacktown Council, Mick Savage from IPWEA, Andrew Baker and Andy Boyce from GHD representing Consult Australia, uh, Sam Hatsa-Valsamis representing the Northern Territory Department of Infrastructure, Richard Fanning, uh, Department of Transport Planning Victoria and James Hughes from the New Zealand Transport Agency. I'd like to acknowledge and thank all the working group members for their efforts uh, in overseeing this work and the extensive reviews that they've undertaken, so thank you to to the group. I'd now like to invite Bill um, to lead us uh, in the presentation. Thanks, Bill.
2: Right. Uh, thank you, Chris. Um, so I'll be talking about the um, the overview of the of the manual and the process for the revision of it. and um, and a bit of background on what the manual's about. And then Mark and I, uh, Mark will lead the detailed discussion on specific sections. So the guide to road design part five um, covers general and hydrology considerations, which gives road designers and practitioners guidance for the design of of drainage systems that are, are relevant for roads. And it needs to be used in conjunction with the other two parts of the guide, which relate to drainage design. So part 5A, and and 5B, which uh, wasn't a key part of this revision, but we will be talking about it today. Uh, Next slide, please. So the Guide to Road Design is available to download, and um, I understand it has just been um, made available on the website now. It has always been available, or the previous edition has been available, but it can be, be downloaded. So all three parts of it can be downloaded for free the Ostroads website and obviously we've only got um, three quarters of an hour to talk about it today so we're not going to uh, cover all of the details but it's well worth your while to to download the Ostroads guide and and also most of you will probably be familiar with Australian rainfall and runoff and so that's also available free for download as well and and the two uh, manuals together will help you in providing all most of the guidance, especially for all the routine uh, road projects that you need to work on. Uh, next slide please. So the drainage and general considerations, it um, it gives uh, uh, information on the elements that you need to consider in um, in road uh, flooding and drainage. It covers some safety aspects, environmental and water sensitive treatments as well as some more technical parts as well. But a key part of it and especially what was was revised here is the methodology used for design, and as well as some of the policy questions. So Australian rainfall and runoff has the complete details of design processes and formula, but um, Austroads really takes that uh, Australian rainfall and runoff guidance and puts it into a a procedure that uh, is specifically aimed at roads. So the manual itself, gives the general outline of procedures uh, that are relevant for road design and then explains the actual applications where those uh, methods are to be used. So it really gives you some good practice. It's not a mandated practice. There are alternative situations where uh, alternatives may be relevant, and it's really more aimed at the routine type projects. Some specialist projects are going to need some specialist design that may be outside the scope of a guide to road design. But for the for most road projects, the the guide to road road design is uh, the way to work out what you're doing with it. Next slide, please. So five a is, uh, is some technical details on um, on road surface network drainage and basins and subsurface drainage and some of these issues, especially in road surface drainage and subsurface drainage, are put areas where uh, designers and, and road agencies do get themselves into a lot of trouble sometimes, so it is something that does cause uh, deterioration of the network, as well as safety and um, an operational performance. So that, that's part A. It, it is a lot of, of detailed work. Next slide, please. Yes. So part, part five B is a is another technical one, and it talks about open channels, culverts, and floodways. So these are important drainage parts of the drainage infrastructure for roads, and it gives you um, the, guidance on the fundamentals of open channel culvert and floodway flows and methods to design those so it really gives you the design processes and it's good practice for design and obviously uh, channels culverts and floodways are very important in roads to make sure that they do perform adequately both technically as well as looking for value for money as well Uh, next slide so uh, part Five. When you see this part five, there's obviously a whole lot of other parts as well. And the uh, Austroads have an integrated system of of road road design procedures. And this this diagram here, that's taken from uh, from Austroads publications, shows that there are all these different parts of a design. And you'll see in the middle of that is um, is drainage with part five, parts five a and five b. And uh, they they cover the drainage parts, and the others cover intersections, geometric design, safety, and those sorts of issues. And there are a few other uh, related guides that aren't part of a road design system, such as as bridges, for example, which are, are pretty important in the road drainage side of the road design. Next, please. So the revision and the update, so WMA Water and myself were commissioned back in 2019 to update and revise part five of the guide design. And I was principally looking at section six, which is the uh, the hydrology uh, chapter, which was a a major part of part five, but it's only one part of a section. And and, um, that was what the update principally considered was that chapter on hydrology. And the reason for the update on hydrology, that most of all you would be aware that Australian Rainfall and Runoff has been under revision for quite a few years, and the uh, updated edition of Australian Rainfall and Runoff was finally published in 2019, and, and the major objective of this revision was to make the hydrology section of the Guide to Road Design consistent with the new methods in Australian Rainfall and Runoff. As well as that, there were a few general revisions that covered developments in hydrology and engineering practice. Um, and, and a few of those were, were relatively minor, but, um, and some of them probably deserved to be revised, but weren't just because it was principally aimed at Australian rainfall and runoff. So one thing or another, it's taken quite a while for this, um, this revision to be finalised, but uh, here it is at last. Uh, next slide, please so the overview of the changes so so um, each of the uh, the chapters in the in uh, part five so section one introduction hardly any changes safety hardly any changes section three on the environment there was a revision of that part of that section dealing with uh, with climate change and there was a new section on blockage which wasn't covered in the previous guide to road design but had been updated in australia rainfall and runoff um, drainage considerations, not a lot there, but there a little bit more talk about extreme events. Operation and maintenance, hardly any change. Chapter six on hydrology was a complete rewrite and it was uh, completely updated. And the appendices, the, the major change on the appendices is, uh, as we'll mention later, the, the rational method has been um, taken out of a, as a recommended method. It was a key recommended method in the previous guide and it is only recommended for a limited number of applications now, and so there is appendices dealing with the rational method. Uh, Part 5A on road surface drainage, et cetera, there really was hardly any change to that, but uh, modern methodology could probably be considered to update some of that. And Part 5B on, uh, on open channel, uh, open channels, culverts, and floodways. Again, there wasn't a lot of change, but there was a um, a new procedure for the average annual time of closure calculation that was included in Part Five B, and that that was a, uh, a quite an update from the old old version, which uh, which was quite uh, quite useful but uh, was a little bit dated. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, general hydrology and considerations. So the rest of this presentation will talk about uh, what has been changed and and updated. And uh, and each section is there. Uh, you you will get these slides later, so you'll be able to link them to the uh, relevant sections in the guide. Uh, next slide, please. So one of the important things was climate change, and obviously there's been big changes in how we need to deal with climate change in uh, road design or road drainage design, and um, so there is is a t- totally revised section on uh, on uh, incorporation of climate change. So um, there's a complicated procedure here that that really gives you guidance on how to how uh, ha- ha- how to manage the analysis of climate change in your design and and whether you really need to or not. This is uh, from Australian rainfall and runoff, so it's a risk-based design process. So the two major issues uh, when you do consider climate change is to assess the uh, changes in rainfall using the Australian rainfall and runoff data hub. And um, in the absence of any any other information, we have uh, suggested adopting a 0.8 metre rise in, uh, in sea level as part of a road design. So they are the two changes, but there is the, the, the uh, risk-based procedure to work out the design. Uh, next, please. And blockage was a section that um, had never been considered previously an Australian rainfall or runoff until the uh, 2019 addition and it had never been considered in the guide to road design. But blockage has always been considered in, in road design and looking at what's the risk from debris blocking culverts and how do we incorporate that into the design. So the updated manual follows exactly the procedure in Australian Rainfall and Runoff for looking at the um, at assessing design in uh, in culverts in particular, but, but probably small bridges as well. And the, um, the manual also includes some advice on design to reduce that risk of blockage. Uh, next slide, please. Ah, jumped dropped over one there. Uh, and, and looking at, uh, at extreme floods, the, the previous guide did mention the uh, consideration of, of, of large floods. These are floods larger than the 1% annual exceedance probability flood. And the previous guide did have some generic comments, but that has been expanded. And the design procedure includes uh, what's covered in Book 8 of Australian Rainfall and Runoff, but also has some advice on what you need to think about when you do consider these large and extreme events. Floods larger than what you're designing the road for, which um, is quite important. You may design your your culvert or your bridges for 1% or, or a smaller design flood. But you need to consider what are the implications when a larger flood occurs as they do from time to time uh, next slide please okay well uh, Mark will join now i'll I'll stay online and uh, Mark will be main presenter but i'll uh, I'll make some comments if if necessary thanks
3: Bill um, so probably the most important thing in in is terminology and in ARNR, we had to rewrite the terminology and adopt what's happening in most places in the world as well. And um, it's the whole road design guide's not been converted across, but it's probably important that you understand that. And so we have this table, first of all. So if you don't understand terminology, this table lets you convert from different probability terms. We have exceedances per year, annual exceedance probability in a percentage or a one in, like as in one in 100, or average recurrence interval, and I guess the key thing is we're moving away from average recurrence interval or return period because they're averages. They're not what's going to happen in the short term. So if something's going to happen every 50 years, that doesn't mean you go 50 years without one. That means on average they'll be. Well, it's much easier to talk about the annualized risk. Um, And with climate change, return periods make no sense because if something's going to happen once every 50 years, but in 50 years it'll happen once every 40 years, you can see we're getting confused. So we like to talk about the annualised exceedance probability. That's the risk each year. The other thing we've changed is for very frequent events, like when previously we would have talked about an event that occurs every three months that you might use for water quality, we prefer to use exceedances per year. So it happens on average every three months, there'd be four per year. And the reason for that is, if you're in a very tropical climate, like Queensland or the Northern Territory, all of those events will occur in the summer and none will occur in the winter. So being three months apart on average is a bit meaningless when they all cluster in summer. It's much better to talk about four exceedances per year. Now, um, I guess the important thing is we have this table here. It's a bit like the Rosetta Stone. It lets you translate from one to another and the preferred terminology is in blue, Um, but there will be occasions when you need to use the other terminology. And my personal advice to everybody is when you're talking to the public, try and explain to them that there's a risk each year. Just because you've had a flood doesn't mean it will go away. Next, please. a big change is really catchment hydrology this chapter goes into detail uh, um, about the design and method and also historical floods and how we calculate hydrographs how we work out flooding Um, these are the standard techniques that people use um, in very complex projects but we've outlined how to use them in a road design project next please now probably one of the key things people will be interested in is probability and risk. And what we've done is we've updated this table, which really looks at um, the preferred um, design probability for different roads, different types of parts of roads, and flood immunity. And so what you'll see here, um, it's probably a bit smaller on your screen, but for a motorway, for instance, we would normally design that for a 1% or a 1 in 100, or if we're using the old terminology, a 100-year return um, but if we're doing a lesser road, it would be for a lower probability. And when you're, when you're designing other aspects of road, like the surface drainage and the curbs, you would design them for a lower probability. I often get asked, why don't we design everything for 1 in 100? Um, there's good reasons for that. Pretty much all the houses are at 1 in 100. So um, if you design something for 1 in 100, you make your job harder. Something we do for a motorway, but not for other roads. and it's very expensive, and many occasions it's not actually practical to reach these, reach these design um, criteria. Sometimes the topography is such that you will never. It a be very expensive to meet that You might have a road where you could easy, easily build a bridge for a um, for a two percent or one in fifty, and it might be a short bridge. But if you wanted to go to a one percent, one in a hundred it might have to be several kilometres long and often it's more economical to build the shorter bridge or it might be that one bridge you can't upgrade and so there's not much point upgrading the other ones that are right next to it.
2: Um, I think the point place. here is that um, this is what you aim for, but um, in many cases you're not going to meet that, so you've got to understand what the implications are of adopting a lower level.
3: Exactly, thanks Bill. Next, please. Um, so one of the other big things, and this is a hobby horse of Bill's and mine is data. And it's really important that you collect data if you want a good design and a robust design. And I think pretty much every project I've worked on where I've been called in where a designs failed, and Bill would probably agree, has been a lack of adequate data collection. Um, and that includes lots of different sorts of data. So we have, um, The normal flood information, like historical flood records, we have various bits of data in terms of um, hydrology from governments. But the things that are also really important is talking to stakeholders to collect information, whether that's the community or local authorities. And some of that information can be informal and visiting the site. I think not talking to locals and not visiting the site probably is the biggest cause of designs that really fall short of expectations
2: you want to add on that bill or I think it's it's not only the technical side of it but there's nothing worse than having a design and and the locals come up with some photos of what happened five years ago and um, and you have to shrug your shoulders and say I've never thought of that before it's really important to get as much data as you can of local data and um and that will help you in your design but it will also help with the acceptance from the, uh, the stakeholders and the community Obviously. as well. Yeah
3: okay so we'll run through this data next slide please we'll run through some of this data because I think it's really critical. Um, now for hydrology there, there are different types of data probably most people ref- instantly will think about rainfall, stream flow, water levels and tidal flows. Um, and people collect that but there's also other information you might want to look at flow patterns if you understand historical flow patterns particularly complex cross flow structures you'll probably get the design right um, flood levels waterway characteristics are really critical as well there might be critical things in that waterway that you might not have thought about and often we're looking at water quality because we want to make sure we're not causing problems with the downstream environment there's topographic data clearly there's mapping there's, there's survey, um, aerial photographs, particularly historical aerial photographs or aerial photographs during floods are really interesting and can give you a great insight. And much of this data is available electronically now, so it's easy to get hold of, and you should be using it. But there's also environmental and community sorts of data, things about soil, the vegetation, the landscape, critical environmental issues in the area um, and community impacts. There's often information on flood-prone houses, which could influence your design. These are constraints that you need to know about. So lots of hydrology data that you really need for a good design. Next, please. Um, one, of, one of the other things is that we've put in, in in parts of chapter six is really about the design analysis methodology. So ARNR's 2019 um, has changed quite a few of these things. Um, a lot of things have really moved completely from hand calcs to uh, computer-based techniques and there's been quite a few changes and probably the biggest one is the rational method. The rational method was the main method we used for many years for lots of parts of road design and one of the problems and challenges was that is it wasn't really based on that much data and so we were doing everything the same but we never knew if it was correct. Now You can still use the rational method for something like a pavement runoff part, part of the pavement runoff calculations, but you don't use the rational method on large catchments anymore. And you would normally use a modeling technique or if you needed a quick estimate, you'd use the RFFE, which is a method that replaces the rational method everywhere where you can pretty much log into a website, put in some key characteristics that you need to know anyway and get an answer in seconds. All these methods are in section 6.6. Next slide, please. (coughs) Um, There's also, to guide you through the ARNR process, a lot of advice on how to use some of the techniques that are in ARNR and specifically for roads, and one of those is where you have outside data. Now, if you have good outside data, you use that in preference to anything else and you would probably be looking at doing some sort of flood frequency analysis where you're making direct use of that at-site data. And there's some pretty powerful and most robust, they're more robust than anything in R, using at-site data, um, much better than modeling in most situations in terms of getting a reliable estimate of the flow um, using flood frequency analysis. But there's also the regional flood frequency RFFV method, which is the last column. And sometimes we're looking at frequent flow events Um, where you just can analyse the local data. So we've got some good advice on what to use and how to go about it. Next, please. And this is further on that, which is really where you apply these different techniques, what you're looking at. Um, When you're looking at frequent floods, you can look at rainfall-based methods. You can use analyse at-site data. You're often looking at flood immunity for roads that cut quite frequently, time of closure, or even designing temporary works, where frequent floods are quite important. But you might be looking at rarer floods, where you're looking at the waterway area. And you need a robust estimate of something like the one in 100 or 1% flood. And there, as well as using at-site data, there are methods that pool information regional-based methods and the RFFE. And you'll probably hear a bit about the RFFE. We've actually got a seminar in a couple of days' time. It's a really powerful technique um, and easy to use. And pretty much every review job I do, and Bill jump in as well, every review job Bill does, the first thing you do is do an RFFE to get a bit of a background secondary check on an estimate of flow to make sure they're in the
2: ballpark. But for a very complex project, it, it's not suitable for a complex project, but you can use that to check the design floods on some key locations just to just to confirm you're in the, in the right sort of general area because it does use all the local uh, gauge catchments. Uh, sometimes they're not that local, but it does use all the gauge catchments in the vicinity, so at least you know what sort of floods you can expect and it gives you a good idea how far away gauge catchments are from what you're doing as well.
3: Next slide please. So most of um, hydrology methods you're going to be using what's called a rainfall-based method because in most locations we don't have data at the road or just up or downstream of where you are and so we're going to use a methodology that takes design rainfall, the probability for certain rainfall in a certain period of time we're going to use a hydrologic model We run the Australian rainfall and runoff framework and that will get an estimation of the peak flow or maybe a hydrograph if you're looking at time of closure now um, there's four methods on the screen here but basically the middle column the ensemble method we probably should have put a red box around this is the method that you use nearly all of time you use the other ones for specialist situations or frequent events but of the time you're using the rainfall-based method with the ensemble method, which is very similar to what people have done in the past. We just run 10 um, temporal patterns compared to what we've done in the past to understand a little bit more about the variability of the floods and what you can observe, Um, because if you just design for one flood, it will be very different to what you get. Um, This is a standard ARNR-based process in the new ARNR. Next, please, unless Bill wants to add. Now, um, one thing ARNR has done is made a lot of the design inputs easier. Um, so we've got a whole chapter it's on It's not just
2: easier, but it's more accurate as well.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's probably worth saying, yeah. Um, so we've got this chapter on how you use it. So um, pretty much every project you're going to do when you're looking at rainfall or runoff, you're going to be going to what's called the Australian rainfall and runoff data hub. It's pretty much a one-stop shop for all information. You might have some better local information and if you do use that, but if you don't have any data in the middle of nowhere, um, or if you do have data, um, it provides you a whole lot of information on the design rainfalls, temporal patterns, where you are, Um, you have to modify the rainfall for your catchment size, the temporal patterns, Um, Pre-burst, which is one of the new things in ARR. So on every project, you'll need to go to the Data Hub. And I guess the other thing that I always labour, if if you're doing some work or somebody's doing some work for you, that information from the Data Hub should form part of your report or an appendix, and your report should say what you've used from the Data Hub and or if you've got local data, why you haven't used that, because you've got some good local data. If we go to the next slide, we'll see a picture of what the Data Hub looks like. now, this might be a bit small on your screens, but basically it's a map of Australia. You can move um, a point around to your location. This one's pointing at Sydney, but it could be pointing anywhere in Australia. And you generally just hit select all, which ticks all the boxes, but the last one, and it gets you all of your design inputs and gives you a whole lot of checking information, like what river region you're in. But each one of those categories is information you need for a design methodology um, when you're using rainfall Um, so your one-stop shop get all of the data put it in your report and the thing that I find good about it is if you try and reproduce some previous results you have recorded exactly what you've used so when you come back to a project and you want to know why you're getting different answers this will tell you what's changed and it links you to the Bureau of Meteorology's IFD or design rainfall page as well. Bill?
2: The previous Previous edition of Australian Rainfall and Runoff, a lot of that information was available, but they all had to be extracted separately by various methods of reading maps and doing calculations. Whereas this um, at least makes sure that everything is consistent uh, from one project to another and, uh, and you know that your losses are consistent with your design rainfalls and temporal patterns because they're all based on exactly the same point.
3: And you can zoom right in on this map too, to make sure you're exactly where you think you are. Um, so there's no real excuses for getting it wrong. Next slide. Now, um, another part, section that we've updated is design and software now. It's important to understand that Osroads doesn't mandate or recommend a specific piece of software um, because there will be innovations, there'll be changes and at times, a different bit of software will be more appropriate. But what we do is provide advice on the sorts of software that you should be using and how you should be using them. And the software section covers hydrology, the different hydrologic models we use, hydraulics. um, There's different hydraulic models, but a lot of people tend to use just one or two. Often it would be a HEC-RAS for for simple situations and something like two flow for more complex situations and what you use for design, Um, because there's a lot of feedback from users what software is appropriate. So keep in mind, there's often more than one bit of appropriate software, but we provide some advice
2: on which ones to use. And as time goes by, there will be new software released. And um, so the advice that's in here is not going to cover what what comes out next year, uh, but it does give you some thoughts on what you need to look for in software. And and, and when we don't put software in some of these categories, it
3: really drives the current people to update their software. Um, So I don't know if you're doing this bit, Bill, but um, one of the things we've updated is rare and extreme rainfall, and we've provided some guidance on how to do this um, because you need to look at a one in 2000 year event. If you're looking at bridge design, that's a critical part of that. And often we see that's being done. Um, using some pretty approximate techniques so this section outlines how you look at floods that are larger than the one percent or one in a hundred what you do and I think probably my view on this is you're not designing a dam you don't need to overly complicated you just need to do something that's reasonable to get a decent estimation of something like a one in two thousand year
2: event um, yeah, and I think that you can go up to very large events. So if you've got a major project where there are potentially huge impacts on the community and a huge risk to infrastructure, um, that, that's where this is particularly important. But it comes down to even very small projects where you just put an overlay on the road, the road levels increase by 100 millimetres, and suddenly there's a, not a huge increase, but a small increase in the uh, impact from the road. So, it's like the major projects are most important, but you do need to look at them for, for relatively small ones as well. And, and on any
3: major project, what you're really looking for is when you, after you've built a bridge or changed the road alignment, that these rare floods are not doing something really dangerous and unexpected. Um, the water might have been contained in the river in the current situation, but with your upgrade, if you haven't thought about it, you might see that you're funneling the water through town or worse than that, funneling the water through a school or a childcare centre where you're really increasing the risk to the community.
2: Right, right. So it's pretty- well, The flow important. is totally diverted from one channel to another. Yeah, so usually
3: it's pretty much now standard practice um, to have a look at one rare event and just to make sure you haven't really changed the situation in a rare event that will cause an extreme community risk. Because um, these these rare events do occur as we've seen last year. Next slide. Um, And this guidance on rare events extends to losses, what you should be doing, the models you're using, the parameters, um, what you did with base flow, and um, ultimately how you get the results. Um, Next. Um, There are also some very specific design issues in road planning that were not covered elsewhere. Um, These issues were not in the previous edition, but generally, guidelines to policy rather than strictly mandated rules Um, so we've provided some guidance on that because there's been lots of questions about that. Next, Um, flood impact criteria. Um, I'm sure Bill's going to jump in here uh, as well. This is probably one of the big issues and maybe this is getting a little bit out of date what we've put here but what we've got is some general impact criteria on what's considered broadly acceptable. for different land uses. So um, how much impact can you have if you build a road on say a residential building, somebody's yard, uh, industrial commercial premises, um, or non-habitable structures like a farmer's shed or a farmer's paddock, um, or even natural open space or a national park or something like that. And it's not just about how much flood levels change, it's really things like the period of inundation uh, often with a farmer, they don't care about how big the flood level is on their paddock. They care about how long their paddock's going to be wet. Um, not changing flow distribution. That's really important because that leads to adverse consequences and velocities. If you really increase the velocities, you can have some serious erosion issues. And often we won't just look at one flood. We'll look at quite a few floods to make sure over that flood range. And if you're a farmer, you probably care about one in two to one in five year floods, um, while if you've got a house, you're probably carrying about one in a hundred probability floods. Um, so different probabilities are critical for different land users. Bill, I'm sure you're gonna say something.
2: And I think that this table is in the guide because everyone asks questions about it all the time. And it's impossible to have a hard and fast rule. So every case is a little bit different. So agriculture, if you're growing sugarcane, for example, your impact criteria are going to be quite different from if you're growing you know, high value horticulture, for example. So all of those vary. So every project, it's, it is one of the the issues that you need to talk to the community and the stakeholders about of, uh, of what's possible and really do some judgment. But this table is there to give a a bit of a generic guidance, so it's certainly um, it's just uh, a generic guidance rather than the strict rule.
3: We we should say also we've put in some guidance on tunnel portals. Um, I guess I drove that a bit, but it's apparent that all of the jurisdictions are doing very different things, um, and sometimes trying to keep water out of tunnel portals is actually increasing the risk elsewhere. So. Um, We've put some guidance in here and hopefully um, we'll standardise what we're doing. Because sometimes people say, Should we make these criteria stricter? If you make them stricter, project costs can go through the roof and sometimes they're not achievable anyway. So, guidance, as Bill said. Next. Um, oh, I've already gone on to tunnel portals, but probably one of the other things is safety. Um, There's some really good work that's come out of Australian rainfall and runoff, um, looking at what are thresholds that are safe for people, um, cars, bicycles. And there's some curves that tell you how your risk increases, and sometimes you don't want these risks to increase. um, But we've all heard the road messages, if it's flooded, forget it. Basically, you do not want people to enter flooded water because... Um, pretty much half the flood deaths in Australia are from people in cars voluntarily driving through floodwaters waters, thinking they'll get to the other side and often the families in the car as well. So that's a strong message but this criteria tells you at what velocity depth combinations um, is safe for people and cars and structures. And what you don't want to do is increase that hazard category significantly um, and put people or cars or structures at risk. Bill?
2: Yeah, this is a, some design guidance um, and, and the practical advice of if it's flooded, forget it's a good idea because you can't really judge or a driver can't judge the uh, the flow velocity. Uh, and I guess there is a difference in this new guide. The old guide had the, v, the D plus V squared on 2G criterion and this one's got a depth velocity criterion, which has normally been used in urban drainage work. So it has changed a little bit, but basically the uh, the actual numbers haven't changed that much. Once it's above 300 millimetres and it's not flowing, it's considered untrafficable. And once it's above about two metres a second, really no matter what the depth, it's hardly trafficable either. So it, it, the, the actual formula has changed, but um, the, the actual guidance is fairly similar.
3: Yeah, and we probably should emphasise too that, The original guidance was worked out on cars from 30, 40 years ago that were built in Australia, not really screwed together very well and leaked quite a lot, while a modern car, um, wherever you buy it from, is very, very well sealed, and it will float for quite a while, which makes it a lot more dangerous. Next. Um, Joint probability. Um, There are lots of situations where you need to, or not, there are often situations where you need to think about the joint probability of flood mechanisms. And this was not really covered in the previous road design. It is covered in AR and R, but the sort of situations you've got where you could be two tributaries joining together, one large, one small, um, what's the probability of them flooding together or separately? Sometimes you're looking at a creek and a tidal situation. There could be two mechanisms. Each independently, all happening together, you often need to understand that. Um, And in that situation, one will come with high velocities and one will come with low velocities. And if you're looking at a link, and this is happening a lot now, where you're trying to look at what's the route serviceability, you really want to understand what's the probability of that road link being closed, not the probability of each individual bridge and culvert
2: built. Yeah, and, and that's something that never, no one ever considered. If you've got a got a section of road with uh, with 20 culverts on it, each designed for a 2% annual exceedance probability, you would think, okay, well, the road is only closed with a 2% annual exceedance probability. But if they occur independently, it can uh, it generally occurs far more frequently than what the probability is for the individual crossing. So it is something that um, I think people in the back of their minds always knew, but... Um, has it really been taken into consideration that there are still, there are some guidance for doing it. It's a major project to do this sort of analysis, but there are some references in the guide for what to look for. And, and it, it's really useful
3: for guiding upgrade decisions because there is no point upgrading a bridge if the next one's going to be cut anyway. Um, it can really inform where you'll get the most value out of your expenditure um, and most benefit to the community. Next, Um, uncertainty. Now, um, one thing that probably gets forgotten occasionally is flood estimation is inherently uncertain. Our flood record and our rainfall record is relatively short compared to most of the world, and any flood estimation will have some level of uncertainty. And in the past, this has been ignored, but um, it's really important with flood estimation when you're trying to design something is to understand the uncertainty and how that would affect your decision making so you need to consider which methods are more reliable with like smaller uncertainty often we recommend sensitivity analysis and we often recommend freeboard to ensure your design works and sensitivity analysis is an important process it's not just about running it and saying yeah if this happens it gets worse it's about Factoring that into your design and I'm sure Bill's going to want to say a few things on this one.
2: Yeah I think that one of the issues with the previous guide to road design and Australian rainfall the run of 1987 is that they were very prescriptive in your methods and people thought you did a calculation and you ended up with a flood level of 17.1 meters and you thought that was it if you were 17.2 you were safe and if you were 17.0 you were in trouble but we need to remember that depending on your method of analysis, depending on what the data's like, those results aren't, aren't as certain as what they might appear in the calculation. So um, it's really something that we need to think about and, um, and the guide and Australian Rainfall and Runoff both have some advice on how to consider that. Okay,
3: we'll move to the next slide and keeping an eye on the time, I'll get Bill quickly run through these
2: sections and then we'll go to the Q&A. Yeah, so nothing, nothing much changed in Part Five A. Uh, the, oh, the un, only thing here was looking at the oh, oh this hasn't been updated actually. It should be Five B actually. Um, yeah. So the only thing covered uh, in, in Part Five B was the uh, the method for doing average annual time of closure calculations. So that that's been extended to give a some alternative methods of calculating the average annual time of closure and also making some comments about the cost of flood closures and also commenting on the fact that when a road has been uh, submerged um, it should not be open immediately, the water has drained away and there needs to be some time allowed after that for inspecting bridges for damage, uh, allowing the pavement to dry somewhat and those sorts of issues. it's fairly similar to what was in the previous edition, but expanded a little bit.
3: Okay, so we will move to the next slide. You might see
2: in the pictures, yes, yeah,
3: the last slide is correct, but the title on there is wrong.
2: Some questions?
3: Yeah, I think Chris is going to jump in.
1: All right. Yes I am indeed, so thanks Bill and Mark for that. Um, questions have been coming in so we're going to now do our best in the time available uh, to get through those. So I'll I'll ask the questions and um, please respond as, as you think appropriate. So the first one's in regard to slide 39 which was the flood impact criteria table uh, and it's part question part comment. Uh, increasing flood depth on a property already inundated is quite different to increasing flood level by fifty millimeters, which may change from lapping at the front step to now flowing through the front door so just if you could comment on that the how the context affects those those limits I, I guess that,
2: that, that, that is something that 's fairly important, but the point is that if you have a um, a five percent flood that 's just below four floor level without the infrastructure and just above flood level uh, with it, the 1% flood is going to be above both of it. and uh, So it does depend on the actual flood. It is complicated, but every situation, you need to look at every situation and and take that into account. Obviously, you're not going to get a perfect answer um, and uh, every situation is different. And I think you need to
3: keep in mind that there will be a flood it might not be 1 in 5 or 1 in 20 or 1 in 100, that you will be increasing by 50 mils and um, the landholder would still be upset about that. Um, well, I would, we all would, if it was our place. So it's, don't just focus on the 1 in 100 or the 1 in 20 because
1: floods won't fit into those boxes very nicely. Yeah. No, thank you. Uh, next question, just about the rational method, you mentioned uh much less application for the rational method in the new guide. Can you expand a little bit on where the right rational method might still be applicable for a road design? Yes, yeah, so if you're looking at flow off a pavement um, that's a very appropriate method
3: um, to use um It's a small catchment area um normally, and um, there's no method. There's no merit in setting up a complex model for basically what is a planar surface. And we know that the rational method works quite well for that. But if you're looking at a natural catchment or a large or an urban catchment, um, you know, a kilometre square or something like that, you wouldn't use the rational method today, basically because it's not based on any data. Um, while these other techniques we know calibrate and fit and work reasonably well um using the design inputs. Bill.
2: Even the new regional flood frequency methods are not are not perfect but um the old rational method when you you look at um Australian rainfall and runoff 1987 the the rational method as used in New South Wales and Victoria was really a simplified uh, regional flood frequency method whereas the other states it was um, based on what what was general practice at the time and what people thought would work whereas the new method does actually use actual recorded data. Yeah, and I think the scary part is that
3: the old methods had wide confidence limits. The new methods still have reasonably wide confidence limits. So um, we know we're getting more reliable, and we also actually have a bit of quantification of how unreliable methods are. Um, There is uncertainty in all flood estimation, and the idea is to use methods that have less uncertainty.
1: and and further questions are coming in on the rational method do you think it's okay as a sanity check uh, for smaller catchments rather than a primary estimation method? I
3: wouldn't have any problem with someone using it as a sanity check Um, but if it's different to what you're coming up with then I would go away and use an alternative more detailed method Um, and
2: I would think twice about putting it in my report um, in any other context. And I guess if you're comparing what was done 20 years ago or 10 years ago, it, it's probably useful for that.
1: Mm. Yes,
3: yeah, yes. yeah. Keep, right, Another you. thing to keep in mind with those older methods, they, the parameters in them were geared towards the old rainfall as well, and some of the other older inputs as well. So they're not really modeling the process, they're just correction factors to try and get you the right answer. So you even less reliable if you use the new
1: inputs. No, thank you. Uh, something on tunnels now, what factors should be considered when designing a tunnel for flooding and what immunity should we aim for? So um, I guess there's different sorts of tunnels to start with. There
3: might be a short tunnel where you can see the other side, could be a road tunnel on a motorway that goes for five or ten kilometres and they usually go down before they go up because um, you, and you can't see the other side. So. Short tunnel, um, there's some advice on that, and I think it's not dissimilar to what we're doing with a bridge or something like that. But for a long tunnel on a motorway, people are going to go in and they need some pretty strong assurance that they can get out. Um, They won't get trapped in a low point in a tunnel, which um, is is quite a scary and high-risk
2: situation. And
3: there are a range
2: In Brisbane, the um, inner city bypass tunnel was flooded some years ago, and there were actually cars left floating in it, and uh, that could potentially have been a a risk to life. Um, It was a very valuable damage because it took quite a while to pump that water out of a tunnel. But overseas, there are examples of tunnels where people have, uh, have died in a tunnel that's been flooded in a flash flood.
3: Yeah. And, and and if you think about it, if a tunnel start, water flows into a tunnel and it fills up at 300 mils in the low point, you're going to have a few cars damaged and there's probably not that much risk to life, but it would be an unpleasant situation. But if it fills up a couple of metres, you're going to have considerable risk to life. And if you're next to a major river, you have pretty much an infinite supply of water compared to the volume of your tunnel. You will fill that up for a long period of time. So in terms of probabilities, I wouldn't be designing a tunnel for a PMF, um, one in a. If it's a small catchment, that's one in ten million. Um, I've flown to Brisbane today and I'm flying back. My chance of flying crashing is about the same, um, but I wouldn't. You would do it something much greater than one in a hundred, probably around one in two thousand, one in one in five thousand, or even ten thousand would be inappropriate. But you don't want it to drive the design where you make the rest of the road unsafe to try and stop water going down the tunnel in a PMF, which is what's happening in some states where actually driving the design to a higher risk situation. Because if you look at a PMF, you're not gonna go out for a Sunday drive in a PMF. Um, You're probably not even gonna be driving because you probably can't see out the windscreen. And if you are in a tunnel, you wanna be able to get out of the tunnel, not drive to go in it. So there's an interesting
2: situation about getting out It's probably more important than getting in. And there's design guidance as well of making sure that external catchments don't drain into the tunnel. Uh, if you're diverting ex- external catchments away, obviously that reduces your risk quite a lot and it doesn't really depend on what your design is, design flood then is. So it, again, um, you, you could recognise that there is can be quite a severe risk to life in, in flooding of tunnels, uh, as well as uh, big expenses, but um, you need to look at indiv- individual
1: cases again. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Now an interesting one about climate change um, factors and application to design. Um, Is there a requirement to design longitudinal road drainage, 10% AP, for climate change?
3: So this is a, a really interesting question. So the first thing is all of the states are moving to climate change and most of the state governments have sort of decided infrastructure should be designed for climate change. And the reality is, in terms of the road space, we still haven't got our official orders, but we should be doing it. Now, the research shows that small floods with climate change are actually generally getting smaller and large floods are getting bigger. Um, and this guidance is not in R, but it's being updated now. There's a there's a research group being set up, well, it hasn't started, but as a result of these recent floods. So small floods will actually get smaller and this is because we're actually going to become a little bit drier in the simple sense. Um, so the rainfall will go up but the catchments will become drier. And so they'll go down while large floods are going to get bigger, so I would probably not do the one in ten for climate change if it's too hard. Um, but I would certainly do the one in a hundred for climate change. Um, but you don't, if if it's your asset's got a hundred year life, you don't really want to design it to perform perfectly well in a hundred years time. You want to look at how it will perform over its design life, and is there an upgrade path? which you can design into it now for somebody to improve that if the serviceability
1: is not acceptable. Yep, Uh, very good. Thanks for that advice, Mark. Um, There's been a couple of questions on RFFE around more information. And what I would do is encourage people to attend the, we have a webinar this Thursday, this week, uh, same time, uh, midday um, and 1pm in Southern States. Uh, on RFFE and Bill and Mark will be presenting information on the update that's been done to the RFFE and providing more information. And I believe Mark will actually walk us through a demonstration of actually applying the RFFE. So in relation to RFFE, I think the answer is attend Thursday's webinar and, uh, and hopefully we'll answer all your questions. Uh, so the next question is about blockage. I'm designing a large number of culverts um, do I need to do a blockage assessment for every culvert or can I use one value? Uh,
2: if you've got a, a single road with a number of culverts where all the conditions are fairly similar, the only blockage uh, issues that will change will be the culvert size. Uh, all the catchment, uh, debris availability, debris transportability, etc. will be the same. So it is uh, it is fairly routine so that it can be done on a fairly simple uh Simple spreadsheet where, where if all of the culverts are are similar, it's a, it's a generic calculation for one, and then that applies with only minor changes for all the rest of them. So. Um, while you might look at it, you've got to do a complicated form for every one. You don't really need to do that. You just need to do it for the generic one and then adjust it. Yeah. Um, if you've got a 300 mil pipe or a 900 mil pipe, well, the blockage factors are going to vary depending on what it is, but that would be the other yeah. change. The catchments will be the same. And, I,
3: and if you do it two or three times, you can do it in your head from then on anyway. So as Bill said, you just do a generic one anyway.
1: No, excellent, thanks Thanks for that advice. Um, next question, um, a very interesting one about Temporary Works. Any guidance on the design storm event and acceptable impacts for Temporary Works applications? Okay, this is, my, this
3: is one of my hobby horses. If I'm going to send a message to in your approval for your project, put in that will be slightly higher impacts during the construction Temporary Works, right? There is no point designing something to meet the criteria, but you can't get approval to actually do the temporary works you need to build it. Because sometimes some high impact temporary works that will be present for two months is a much lower risk than the moderate impact temporary works that will be present for two years if you're building a bridge. Um, so so risk is important. So first of all, it should be included in your um, design and your submission to the various planning authorities on what you're going to do to get approval now what should you be designing it for Um, if you're the the constructor the contractor you clearly don't want to design something for one in a 100 but you do want to not have nuisance flooding like a one in two year disrupt your work for long periods of time Um, so the contractor's got a different interest to the to the asset owner who doesn't want to flood during construction to flood people's houses and so we've got different coming from different positions and you need to think about that first thing it should be part of the design process for any major waterway structure
1: yeah. thanks for that response Mark. um i'm just watching the time uh now have i got time for one more
0: uh well we do have time for one more but i just wanted to give okay. you a cue that it's probably close to right okay up. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Um, so um, it's about when we consider a road flooded. When do you consider a road flooded? Is it the edge of the road? Is it the crest? Um, how, how do we define that? Okay. That's a tricky one. Not
2: really In a perfect world, it would be the edge of the road. Um, for the purposes of calculations, often it's easier to consider the crest because that's when your maximum afflux is going to occur. Um, but, but I think it's whenever there's any water onto the, onto the traffic lanes. There has been designs where they've
3: designed, so one of the two lanes will be open during a certain size event because of other um, critical crossings further down or upstream or access to important infrastructure as
1: well. So not a simple question, certainly not a simple answer. No, thank you. I, I knew I was trying it on a bit, asking that one, but thank you. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll stop the Q&A there because uh, we've gone a little bit over time, um, but I just want to point that um, all the questions that have come in, we will be responding to uh, in writing, uh, and we'll do that within the next week. So if we haven't answered your question, and there are many that we haven't had time to cover, fear not, um, we will be getting an answer to you. Um, so, uh, now over to Ekaterina to, to wrap up the session. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much, Chris, uh, Bill, Mark and Monique, uh, who was uh, tirelessly uh, answering questions in the background. Thanks so much to all of you for a fantastic presentation very important projects um, yes I'm going to wrap up uh, as you can see on uh, your screen uh, there is a bunch of webinars coming up on our schedule um, and as Christopher um, already mentioned the second session for this project uh, will run on Thursday this week um, at 1pm so if you haven't already please uh, visit our website and register and you can also find more information on every of the sessions um, on the um website as well. Um, When we close off, um, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. So please take a couple of minutes to send us your feedback. Um, It really helps us to know what you liked about the session or didn't like um, and what suggestions you have for future webinars. Uh, Once again, today's session is being recorded and we will send you the link uh, to the recording when it's published on our website. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and safe um, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank okay.